Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Katya Forbes. Hi. Hey, it's great to see you. Great to meet you. Are you cold in the studio yet? Uh, Not yet, but I have my jacket close at hand, so we'll see how we go. I did promise that it would would get cold. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Just before we jump in, we're here thanks to our partner Streamtime, who keep our episodes happening. Project management software that doesn't feel like project management software. We use Streamtime to keep our episodes on track. Uh, Check them out for yourself at streamtime.net. So this is the back of your baseball card. Mm. Founder of Designit, formerly known as Seift. Is that correct? Sift. Sift. Okay. Actually, if you're going to give it its Swedish pronunciation, it's Sifter. Sifter. So I, I, yes, founder of Sifter, purchased by Designit. Right. Okay. Mm. Because we're going to unpack that in a little bit. Um, Specialist in research and experience design, Mm -hmm. educator in design thinking and interaction design at University of Sydney. This is true. This is all true still. Mm -hmm. Okay. Still true. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Director of the Global Board of Interaction Design Association, IXDA. That is also true. Also true. Holder BA of Communications and Broadcast Journalism, which I want to talk about. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) A Master of Multimedia Design and a Master of Science in Human-Centered Systems. This is all true, and you're just making me feel like some desperate overachiever. <laughs> yeah. I'm one of those people that sort of thinks that they're quite busy, and I do quite a lot, and then mm. I, I, I interact with someone like you, and I just think, oh, okay, there's a lot more to do. <laughs> um, also, Australian Financial Review and Westpac, 100 Women of Influence and Top 10 Female Entrepreneurs in Australia. Uh, yep. How did also I get you true. Here? <laughs> this is amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, yeah, it's um, you must really love trying to figure people out. It is my deepest passion. Right. Um, I'm often asked after explaining what I do because it always the conversations always start. So, what do you do, Katya? And then I explain that. The question that comes after that is, well, why do you like it? And it's because. As designers and researchers, we're given the license to look under the hood of anything and everything and figure out how it works Mm. and how the people and the technology will connect to turn it into something, the stuff that I have seen out in the field. (laughs) I have stories I can tell you, but, yes, some of them are quite confidential. Like broken Um, systems or? (laughs) That's like the least of it. Oh, really? Um, I mean, we have been out in the field, um, you know, my team and and myself have been out in the field studying all sorts of circumstances. We've gone to do, say, small business research out in Broken Hill and you kind of end up in these situations where you turn up at the house for the people that you're going to be interviewing and you're a little bit concerned from the outside whether you're going to be okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, am I going to be safe? Am, am I going to be safe in this? And oh. then you go inside and everybody turns out to be perfectly normal. Mm. But there's also other incredible things that when I've been doing uh, research and usability testing with low-income, uh, low socioeconomic people, mm. one of those ones, I walked in there and the guy's like, do you mind if I pull a cone before we start? Oh, wow. And I thought about it. I had a moment where I'm like, what does ethics say about somebody who wants to smoke marijuana before they do a session with me? So I said to him, is this the state in which you would ordinarily use this system? Oh, wow. And he said, yeah, totally. And I was like, okay, off okay. we go. Let's User go. User testing, legit. Yeah. You don't want to skew the data, right? No, no. And like, I'd, <laughs> I, if I had you know, said to him, that's not okay, perhaps I would not have got as real 
a user interaction as I was looking for. But yeah, as researchers and designers, we kind of confronted with all this sort of reality a lot. And especially in the research game, you have to make decisions quickly about, is this ethical? Is this right? Am I okay with this? Am I safe? Is this person okay with this? Am I making them uncomfortable? If I am making them uncomfortable, do I need to make them uncomfortable to get what I need for my research? If so, how do we then, you know, make that okay? I mean, in what other field would you would you go through that process in about, you know, 30 seconds? So it takes like a very inquisitive mind I would say, you know, from the outside looking in to to do a role like that. Yeah, you must be curious. Right. You must be a very curious person to be able to to do this job and to be authentic and sincere in doing the job. It's turning into an episode of Triple J Hack, I think. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, Tom Tilly. Um, Yeah, oh my gosh, like where do we even start? Why don't we talk about Design It? Sure. Um, So Sifter. Mm. uh, see, I learned stuff. Was founded in 2014. Correct. It's yes. only just 2019. That is a very short window of time to found a business, fund, found, found yep. a business, um, and then have it acquired by a huge, a huge global organization. Yeah. Um, so what and how? Right. So, <laughs> so Sift is the Swedish word for purpose. And my family background is actually Finland, which is right next door. But the word in Finnish that I wanted to use was unfortunately already taken on the the internet and in the ASIC register. Mm. Um, I really, really wanted to call my company Sisu, which is the Finnish word for, means like uh, strength and gumption, but a particularly female vibe. Right. of strength and gumption. Wow. But anyway, that was gone. So we went with Sift. <laughs> I started that company and it was it was by accident because I'd worked in another company. I'd had a, a previous company to that. Wasn't, uh, wasn't as successful as I'd hoped it would be. I exited from that and sort of paused for a minute at, at Commonwealth Bank going, all right, I, I know this place. Mm. Uh, I've been here before. I'll just sit down and, and figure out what I'm going to do next because I thought that that business that I was running was going to be the thing and it turned out it's not. Mm. What will I do now? So I went and contracted at ComBank for a bit and the person who, who had um, hired me, uh, somebody who I went a long way back with, um, Catherine Kelly, she said to me, look, I've got this massive project. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to create staff personas. We're trying to get an understanding of how our people are using our systems and tools. And I was like, all of the people in the bank? Wow. All of the people? And she's like, all of the people. That's a lot of imp- – and, and obviously constantly changing because yeah. it's so – so busy. And then you've got contractors and vendor workers, yeah. temporary pro- people. Massive, and- massive projects. So think about right. that. So think about applying, uh, you know, the customer experience persona kind of work that you would do mm-hmm. to the internal workings of an organization as large as Commonwealth Bank. And I said to her, well, that's that sounds great and I'd love to do it, but that is a huge job and I'm going to need some people, and you don't have the people who are the right people for this job, can I go get some of my own people? Because I know who are the right people for this job. And Combank went, well, yeah, sure, but we can't engage with you unless you're a PTYLTD company because of superannuation risk. So I went, oh, all right, I'll make a company. And that's how I started the company. Wow. It was literally to comply with my client. So that I didn't, you know, get them into trouble with the ATO on superannuation. And so you just started into that project, got went your into squad that project. Together. Yeah, got my crew together. <laughs> Are these people um, that you work with in the past? Yeah, just people that yeah. you've met through mm. through IXDA or no? Both of them were people who I've worked with previously. Mm. One was one of my very favourite humans in the world, Anna Dixon. Anna, I met towards the middle or tail end of. Um, 
of 2014, uh, she'd just finished her General Assembly course and was going from shoe designer to experience designer and was okay. looking for her first opportunity. I rang up my contact at GA uh, Penny and said, I urgently need somebody to take notes for me tomorrow. I can't pay them very much. I have to pick them up in the morning. What do you got? Or who have you got? And she's like, oh, Anna. I think Anna would be the right one for you. I didn't even talk to her beforehand. I didn't interview her. I picked her up at the train station the next morning and off we Did went. Did you have to describe what you looked like, what type of car you were driving? Because yes. you, cause you <laughs> yes. just had literally had never met this person. I had never met this person. Um, <laughs> and so Anna and I went off on a research jaunt into, uh, was we were researching with teachers, I think, for that particular project. Mm. And she turned out to be one of the best and one of the first of my employees and, and one of the best employees that I've ever had. Um, and so, yeah, she was part of that project team. Mm. Uh, the other person who was in the project team was, uh, she was, I'd met her at Commonwealth Bank in my previous incarnation. She's an org psych. Joanna. Org psych, sorry? Uh, organizational psychologist. Okay. It's a thing. It's a new yep. thing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. They, they yeah. understand the psychology of organizations. So it's actually yeah. a really good natural fit into experience design on the employee side. Mm. So I had an organizational psychologist. I had a, a user experience researcher, ex-shoe designer, um, and then there was me. So we you know, got ourselves together and off we went and interviewed 18 general managers across, you know, all and their delegates across all the departments to line up the research and get their permission to talk to all their crew. Mm. We went out into the field and we did 107 observations of people doing work with internal wow. systems. Uh, we were sent out there to look at one system. In our travels, I think we ended up finding about 108 different systems and tools that people were using. Oh, wow. Like yeah. from, from software? From software to templates to things that they built themselves to other systems wow. to things that they probably, you know, wasn't quite the right thing for them to be using for mm. the job, but workarounds because something didn't work. So, so is that just like an astronomical amount of like uh, double up and it was redundancy amazing. and yeah, everything? It was, yeah. there, there, was, there was a huge amount of, of reasons for everything that we saw. But we come out came out of that with some incredible stories as well. And so we spent about a month out in the field you know, doing that uh, that research, and then came back and did the synthesis and and presented it all back to all of those general managers who were interested to understand who are the staff. And I think we ended up with about six staff personas, which are still in use today for them mm. to design their internal systems and tools and their employee experiences. That was how I started the company, and then we were successful with that project. And Catherine Kelly says to me, "So we've got this other thing. Can you have a look at that?" And then somebody else said, but we've got this thing too. Can you have a look at that? And before I knew it, I had seven people working for me. Mm. I figured, ah, I've started something. It's a bit of a runaway train. What would a sensible business person do? A sensible business person would find another client so that, you know, we're not, we're not all stuffed. <laughs> Completely like in with one client. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> because I have, like, I have seen companies go down because they just invested too heavily in one client mm. and that client pulls the pin. And that company is done. Yeah. And even, even you know, shrinking to half the size or a quarter of the size because you have entire teams of people on, on one particular exactly. project and then something happens that's out of everyone's control often yeah. and then they're just gone. There's no job the next yep. day. There's no and work to do. So over the years, over those four years, we, we kind of grew as big as 18 people at one point. And oh. that was the point at which I was most terrified, I think. That's the um, tipping point, isn't it? Like above 15 or something? It starts yeah, uh, above to become 15, a different yeah, business. Above 15 is a totally different business, both, mm. um, you know, legally and compliance wise. Uh, but also from a, you start to need people to support the people. Yeah. So 
that, that HR don't, traffic managers, yeah, that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Someone on the books a mm. couple of days a week, that sort no, of stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. God, bookkeeping. Sorry, I shouldn't have brought up bookkeeping on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, so that, that was, that was a, a, the, the business did well for quite some time. We dined off Commonwealth Bank for quite a long time and that was fantastic, but we needed to find other clients and, and we did. And we worked with Transport for New South Wales, Office for Environment and Heritage. Um, we worked with other banks like Macquarie Bank. We've done quite a lot of work with them. And then we were also really fortunate um, that uh, we managed to hire a design director who was working in at Qantas um, and she brought Qantas with her. And we're still working with Qantas today, which is mm. a, a great testament to the relationship that we've built in there. But th it hasn't all been good and fun. We had a pretty serious downsizing at the beginning of 2018. Um, I had started the discussions with Wipro Design It previous to that, and they said, oh, you're, you're too small. And that's who that's who has ultimately acquired yeah, you. So yep. the the story with Design It is they're a design strategic design organization that was bought by Wipro a few years back now. I think it was maybe twenty four no, maybe twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. I'm not sure of the exact acquisition date. They Wipro was smart with this. So I've seen other organizations, they're a large systems integrator, and I've seen other organizations do the same and bulldoze the design into the ground and, and everybody just dies. Oh my under God, the there's bulldozer. a whole question on yeah. here about how, yeah, how, how can yeah. you retain, uh, you know, who you are through so acquisition and everything? They have been smart in that mm. they bought Design It and left it alone. They left them as an independent PL, an independent organization within the larger Wipro group and said, we want to watch you and see what we can learn because we think you've got something to teach us. Mm. Then Design It uh, acquired Cooper, in Alan Cooper's company, Cooper Design, in 2017, giving them a, um, a North American footprint. And then 2018, they acquired us to, to get a footprint down here in Australia and New Zealand. But it is, yeah, it, it has been a, a very interesting acquisition process. And I did a lot of due diligence on the organization from a values perspective mm. to see whether or not we were aligned. And also looking at were they going to acquire us and then grind us under their heel of of huge corporateness. Not yep. not that, you know, they're an organization like that, but big corporates tend to squash smaller companies that they buy if they're not careful. Absolutely. Um, it and, happens all the time. Yeah, yeah, and they have been they have been careful. Hmm. So yeah, that it took a year to do that deal. The whole of twenty eighteen was me negotiating that deal. But I am confident that I've made the right decision with the, the acquisition because I love my my peer group, my new peer group. <laughs> That's the thing about being a sole director. It is tough and lonely. Right. And and there's a point in time where you just go, I just wish I had some friends to talk to about this yeah. stuff. That's 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 interesting to hear you say that and mm. um, kind of leads me into IXDA, I suppose, like that sort of that sort of network. Um, some friends of mine um, run a business together. Years ago they were talking about soda as oh, well. Yeah. Um, yep. and they were they were saying that they for so many years they're running their business by themselves and they went to something like that and they were in a big room with all these other, yeah. you know, founders of businesses and everything and everyone was just so candid mm. with helping and it wasn't this competitive environment. It's this really good excuse to have these conversations that they've just like had bottled up, like, well, you know, money, yeah. you know, clients, work, yeah. managing you, a whole you staff need, growth. Even, even as a sole director, you need a peer group who yeah. you can talk to. I've been pretty fortunate in that I um, I'm a member of the CEO Institute which is a you know it's a CEO networking 
uh, organization. I'd call it CEO therapy. Um, right. Because we, we all go to our syndicate <laughs> meeting and everybody just goes, blah. <laughs> but that, that has been hugely helpful in shaping me as a business person because everybody in my syndicate is from totally different businesses. It, there's nothing that competes with us. Mm. And I would not have... I would not have done the deal that I did without the input and the guidance of those people in my syndicate and the the assistance and help of the syndicate chair, Anne Massey. She's been an instrumental um, part in just guiding me to ask the right questions, make the right decisions, push back when it makes sense, fold when it doesn't. And all of all of that has been just, just you, you can't do it alone as much as, as much as you might like to think you can. Mm. Other people always have something to contribute if you're willing to listen. Well, let's talk about IXDA because mm. you've been the local leader mm. and I want to unpack what that is for about six years, five or six years. Yep. But now you're also on the global board. So what, is, what does that mean? And maybe for listeners, like what, what is sure. the value of IXDA on a local level and then on a global level? Well, I think, yeah, all, a lot of the value of IXDA is really on the local level. So right. IXDA is a uh, professional community organization it is volunteer-led, volunteer-run. It has uh, a couple of paid employees at the global level from an administrative and organizational point of view, our executive director, and some people who manage our partnerships, you know, particularly uh, partnerships with Adobe, or partnerships with other organizations who sponsor the events. But we have more than 200 chapters around the world, and a chapter can be opened by anyone who has an interest in fostering a design community in their city or town or region or university. So we have, you know, some IXGA chapters are university-centric. Oh, really? Yeah. That makes sense. Mm. Like, you know, everyone's congregating in that one area and yeah. they all have similar patterns and everything. That makes sense. But all it, all it really takes is an individual who has got the passion, the drive and the organisational ability to start pulling together design-related events and things that advance our discipline within their community. So I did not start the IXDA chapter in Sydney. That was Jay Rogers, who's uh, at Atlassian. And he's like, oh, we, need a, we need an IXDA. I didn't even know what it was. This is, you know, back six, seven years ago. Mm. And he's like, we need IXDA here. And I said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll come along to the first I'll meeting. I'll Google that. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Um, and the first meeting of Sydney IXDA was uh, about 30 people in the old Atlassian building's basement where Jay got us to, you know, get a bunch of post-it notes out and say, what do we want to do with this chapter? What do we want to do with this community? Mm. And he worked really, really hard to get it up and running and Atlassian was super supportive in giving us space and giving us beer and pizza and all of that kind of stuff. And Jay stepped down about a year or so in, and then Joe Ortenzi and myself stepped up to be co-local leaders of Sydney and ran it together for about another six years until I was accepted onto the global board. Um, when I stepped down from Sydney and um, Joe and the team, there's a whole team who run right. it. You, you, again, you can't, you can't do, do it, it alone. <laughs> yeah, that volunteer stuff, I have some experience in mm, running volunteer mm. volunteer things. I ran Creative Mornings for several years. Yeah, um, similar. In Sydney. Yeah. I always find that these things personally have mm. a shelf life. Yeah. Like how long can you invest your time and your creative capital mm. in this thing that you absolutely love? Yeah. But, you know, you're four and a half years in, you're staying up really late, you know, working on something that's happening yeah. the next day in a somewhat related but also in a somewhat thankless job because eventually yeah. it does go away. Is is How did you do that for so long? Oh, there's so much benefit to, to be gained by the community. So mm. the, the whole thing for XTA is it's for the community, by the community, to serve the community. Um, and as local leaders, as and we, you know, there's hundreds of local leaders around the world. As local leaders, we're intrinsically altruistic. 
I suppose, in in that we want to better our community. We want to share learning. We want to connect people. Mm. And that that makes it makes it easier, I guess, for, for you to feel okay about giving your personal time towards it. We stood up a mentoring program because we were finding there's a lot of people who are coming out of uh, the short courses of General Assembly Academy XI that, you know, the quick ways into design. Um, and we're finding that while they might have known what tools are in the toolbox, they weren't sure when to get the hammer out or when to get the screwdriver or, or when it was like somewhere you should call a plumber. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I and, like that a lot. And so we, we created a mentoring program so that newer designers would be able to ask more experienced designers for help, for guidance. And that's been hugely successful. And seeing seeing the successes of those efforts and you know there's, there's a bunch there's a whole mentoring team for IXJ Sydney who run that program um, and it's not an insignificant amount of time they put into it but seeing the success of that and then they presented that uh, at interaction Lyon uh, interaction 19 uh, in Lyon a couple of years ago and all of the other chapters are like can you can you give us your stuff um, wow. we'd like to do this so now Berlin's picked up what Sydney has done and is starting to run mentoring programs. So it's that sort of sharing right around the world as well and, and learning from each other. Um, that's also, it's invaluable. I'd, I would give up twice my weekends to, to, you know, get that sort of thing fostered in the community. Surely you don't have any time left. Um, <laughs> I, I get your point though. Yeah. So we can talk about that now actually, because I did, I did dig up something, a quote someone made from you, mm. coaching is on equal footing mm. um, and or uh, there shouldn't be a level of seniority applied when coaching, yeah. which I found really interesting. And if Matt, my co-host, was here, he'd be jumping up and down because he, he loves talking about mentorship and education. Yeah, yeah. Um, but can you kind of unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So I've done a fair bit of uh, speaking workshops and, and um, you know, talks generally about design coaching. Mm. So the situation that we find ourselves in, in the design landscape is there's a lot of people in our organizations who've been sent to design thinking training. Right. Yeah, let's all go and get design thinking. I'm going to get me some of that. Um, and it is, it's, we, we have people who go to one hour workshops or one right. day workshops or three day sessions or whatever, whatever the training is. And then they walk out of their training and a trainer points at them and goes, you're a designer now. And then all of the people who are designers for jobs, a little bit their soul dies. I think it's kind of like, you know, saying I don't believe in fairies or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like everyone's a designer. Okay. Right. Everyone can do it for sure. Design mm. thinking is great. It does democratize our craft, which is Great. It mm. creates advocates for what we do in organizations, which is also great. This is this is terrific stuff. But it also puts the tools and techniques into the hands of people who are not as well versed in how to use them mm. and the nuances of, of what we do and how we do it. Like they you could teach them how to interview, but they might not recognize themselves leading in an interview. Yep. So those sorts of mm. things are, is just comes with experience with the craft. Mm. Design coaching is me taking coaching tools from the 80s and 90s, um, the grow model, appreciative inquiry, you know, leadership uh, types of skills up on the balcony, down on the dance floor, helicoptering and zooming, and applying that to design in an organization and how we as designers, senior designers, lead designers can coach our 
our stakeholders, our clients, our um, own internal humans who we come into come into contact with in the organisation, coaching more junior members of our team perhaps. But coaching is a it's a peer-to-peer relationship in terms of knowledge. One person may have more knowledge, but your job is not to teach them. Your job is to help them find their own expertise by asking the right questions and prompting them for different ways of thinking about a problem. So coaching is is a it's a really that's very nuanced language. Yeah. Mentoring, there is a seniority implied. Somebody is better at the thing or more experienced at the thing than the other person. And so the mentoring relationship is is a senior to junior type of dynamic, I guess. And then we've got, you know, stakeholder management, which is, that's a different thing altogether. You know, Mm. you're not coaching, you're not mentoring, you're just managing your stakeholders. And then there's training and education, which is this person is teaching these people how to do the thing. Mm. Um, So they're, they're very different. And the thing that I try to unpack in the design coaching sessions that I run is that you're not teaching them. This is not a training session that you're putting together. A coaching plan is how you and your coachee work together so that they can find their own path to expertise in this space. And you just, you support them. You, I love that. Yeah. That's great. Well, it's, it's, it's the definition of it, which is, seems to yeah. escape most people because they go, oh, yeah, coaching and mentoring. Like it's the same thing. Oh, and I it's think not. I, I think I just bunched them together. It's like UI UX. Just oh, man, <laughs> do you want to get punched? It's <laughs> so great. Well, one of my questions was yeah, was the state of UX because I had noticed that you um, had had done some teaching at General Assembly. We used to do some training have, as well. Hmm. And you mentioned that the first person you hired was someone who changed their life, did a GA course, hmm. and then came through. They're good friends of ours as well here. And I just wanted to kind of unpack because I knew that when we were doing when we were doing our training, we did training hmm. in user experience and design, digital design, interaction and stuff like that. Mm. There were some people, because we used to have mentors come along and teach mm. for us, there were some people that were a bit resistant to that yeah. in the sense of, well, look, I, you know, I, I'm an anthropologist. This person over here is a psych major, mm. you know, has as many qualifications as you do. Like doing a 10-week course isn't going to make you understand user experience or people. And I got that mm. a couple of times. Um, and mm. so I'm very interested in your experience in both because you've, you've got all the masters, but you're very very pro mm. things you're very positive about it all hey look it's true 10 weeks of immersive experience in a in a general assembly academy xi sort of tractor school mm-hmm. uh, type of course that was our is, school yeah tractor yeah so 10 weeks of that does not equip you to go out into the world and be a designer like the 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 designer mm. you still have so much to learn and so much experience that you need to gain again to know which tools do I pull out of the toolkit do I pull out is this is this the right place for co-design mm. or is this the right place for me actually to do a quantitative study because we need to to get a much larger sample size to respond to the things that we're asking about or do I need do I need data over time? In which case, maybe I should run a longitudinal study instead. We'll do diary studies and interviews at the end of that. So it's looking at your contexts and and problems that you're trying to solve, questions you're trying to answer, and figuring out what's the what's the right technique. And that doesn't come from a ten week course. Right. That teaches you the technique, gives you an opportunity to practice the technique. But if you go out into you know into the wilds of the world, you need to you need experience, and you also need people around you who can help you mm. to figure out how do I practice the craft now, me, myself, out in the world. And 
I would always encourage anybody who's gone through General Assembly or Academy XI or, or one of those short courses to seek a opportunity where they work in a team. Because Absolutely. I've seen a lot yeah. of them who come out and then they go and be a team of one in a startup somewhere who will pay them like peanuts or if anything. They also, never work for free. And But anyway, I've seen them and they're, they're a team of one and they're, they, they're just doing their best with 10 weeks worth of practicing. Mm. And it's unreasonable to assume that they'll be able to build their craft without a community or without a team to help them. Mm. I think that if anybody is going to spend 14 or 15 grand, whatever, probably give up their job and spend 10 weeks trying to to learn this craft, to them I say, welcome, welcome to the industry. Mm. You seem really enthusiastic about what you're doing. You know, it's great to have you. I'm not of the mindset that I think that people who do those courses are crap or uh, in some way lesser than somebody else who's done some different or come to user experience and design by a different path. Because, mm. I mean, if you think about all of the paths that people get to experience design, like yeah, the, all of the possible paths mm. are in evidence. Journalism. J- journalism. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but it, it is not, uh, I don't want to exclude people or make them feel like their efforts are not worthy. Mm. But what I do want is I want to create environments and community for them, which is a lot of what I was doing with IXDA, where they can further that learning. So running workshops, getting people who are invited, like, you know, we ran a remote workshop with Indy Young on how to how to practice empathy. You can't learn from anybody better than Indy Young about that kind of thing and providing those sorts of opportunities for people who are seriously interested in this space, our craft, and being a part of it. I mean, why, why would we shut them out? Yeah. That's just that's just churlish. Hmm. I don't think churlish has ever been said on our <laughs> podcast before, and I'm very happy that it was. Is there a project that we could talk about that you're working on recently? So it, it had been a while since I got my hands dirty because as the business owner, your hmm. job is to make the business go forward. And it is very difficult to make the business go forward if you are down in the weeds on the tools or doing anything like that. But I did have an opportunity last year to go in and uh, work with uh, a very, I'm not even going to bother, work with Qantas, (laughs) (laughs) a major Australian airline. I mean, who else is it going to be, right? kangaroo and the, yeah. Um, anyway, working with Qantas, um, one of our, our super favorite clients, and we work with them on a really interesting project where they were trying to understand how they could connect their loyalty programs a little better. So they have Qantas Frequent Flyer, which is their primary loyalty program, and they have the part that we're working on, which is Qantas Business Rewards, which is another loyalty program. So the work that we are asked to do was figure out if they connected those two programs what would people need to see for it to be valuable? What would right. they need to see when they logged in for it to, to be valuable to them? To w- their website? or Yeah, in, into the Qantas website. Right. So we've got frequent flyer over there, business rewards over there. How do we make those two come together in a meaningful way for customers? Mm. And so because I love co-design, I love it. I was like, this is a job for co-design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, my, one of my favorite That's things. That's your go-to, is it? Yeah. Uh, hey, it's so much fun, all right? You can, <laughs> you can bring in boxes of craft material. You can bring in Lego. You can bring in, uh, you know, like stuff that people can play with. Um, and it's a fun participatory way of getting people to give you authentic information about what they need. Shut the gate. Um, how do you use Lego 
in the co-design. I've never seen that before. Oh, okay. You need to go to Google. So <laughs> there is a thing. It's called Lego Serious Play. You can get uh, accredited as a facilitator of Lego Serious Play. Really? In, so, yes, we have an accredited Lego Serious Play facilitator the podcast. in Sydney. We're going to Google right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> my friend Catherine Ryan runs um, Play Academy which is a Lego Serious Play. She's an accredited Lego <laughs> Serious oh Player. Oh, my gosh. This is like a dream come true. See, Mum, I told you. Seriously, it's Legos. a thing. <laughs> so the way you use Lego in uh, participatory activities is basically you, you say to somebody, here's, you, know, you tip all the Lego out on the table and mm-hmm. you say to somebody, build me the last project that you worked on and how it felt. Build me that. Cool. And so you give people maybe two, three minutes to build whatever it is. Everybody independently works, so you nobody builds. It's not a collaborative thing. You is there talking during this, or do you run it in silence? Uh, you do you quiet time while people are independently building. You yep. can play some music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then everybody will have created a model that can represent the thing that you've asked them to think about. And then you get them to describe that model and why. Why it is the thing. Why, why does this represent the last project you worked on and how you felt about it? And it's got nothing to do with what they build with the Lego, but it it's about the story it allows them to tell mm. and the the way that you can question their story. So somebody will build something, they might use a flower, they might use a red brick or five red bricks or something black and you go, well, why is that black? Or why did you put a flower there? What does that indicate? Oh, well, that was the time when, you know, I felt really valued by my team or, you know, and you can get to really... Um, Terrific, again, authentic mm. experiences that people want to want to communicate to you. So, I Lego is a it's a and it's a great leveler because That's it's cool. like everybody knows how to use Lego. Although, mm. to be fair, I did run a session once, and I said to everybody, which is I I feel like it's my little starting joke, which is so everybody knew, knows how to use Lego, right? And one session, one guy goes, uh, "No, I've never used Lego." Oh no! And I was like. You get the concept of putting a brick on top of a brick, right? <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, 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 I get it. And I say, I think you'll be fine then. He had but, it. Yeah, but he seriously, yeah. never use Lego. Yeah, wow. But yes, in, in this co-design session, I was using Lego. I got them to, you know, build the experience that they were hoping for mm. um, and then to describe that to me and what were the, what were the facets, facets and nuances of it that made it better. Yeah, so being able to do that was great and we got a huge amount of customer insight into what they valued, what information did they value, mm. what didn't they care about. So when we went in there with a hypothesis and, and it turned out that our hypothesis wasn't quite right and we actually managed to pivot um, and they've just recently connected the two loyalty programs. So they've right. s- s- flicked the switch on that mm. and the stats that they've gotten back from it, are, I, I can't share them unfortunately, but sure. they are exceptionally good right? in terms of um, engagement between the two programs, um, uplift of the connected uh, loyalty products to the Qantas business rewards. So, you know, Caltech star cards and all of the other things that they, that they have as part of that loyalty ecosystem, mm. the uplift has been huge. So super successful. Um, and you can trace it. What I love about it is you can trace all the way from those co-design sessions and the, the Lego models and the, the things that they drew and built for me all the way through to what is now live mm. and delivering for customers and go, look how well that worked. So that was a that was a great project, and I'm really proud of, of the team who executed on it, um, and also that I got to have a hands-on part of it. Yeah, um, your eyes kind of lit up when mm. you when you know when we had the permission to talk about this. Mm. Uh, how important is it for you to 
to make sure that you do come back and, and get your hands dirty, so to speak, like periodically. Yeah. And make sure you don't drift too far away from the hands-on practice. Uh, you know, as someone that has all these other roles and responsibilities that are very much management and CEO yeah. level. I know what I'm good at. I am really good at facilitating. I'm really good at uh, running a room, doing workshops, pulling apart difficult problems with people. I'm really good at that sort of stuff. And so I try to make sure that I do continue to do that kind of work. I am not really good at using Sketch and Envision and creating wireframes or screen designs or things like that. It's really not my bag. I have done it. Like I'm there. There are interactions in NetBank today that I did, and I'm pretty proud of that. But I would like <laughs> I just I would not pick up those tools right. because I'm not the right person to do that job to the quality that is required now. Mm. Because my hands have been off those tools for for so long it's mm. just it's and it's also it's not super exciting to me I don't, I don't care where that link goes when you click on that link you know or what happens when this moves over there I'd the level the detail of that is just it doesn't jazz me but the interacting with humans and unpicking the detail of what goes on in people's brains yeah when they are trying to use a product or a service or, or engage with the technology or, or anything like that that's really interesting so I definitely like to stay hands-on, and also looking at new ways of doing things. Mm. So there's always new ways of doing things coming through, and it is impossible to keep up with the reading for our industry to stay 100% yeah. current. I'll bet. I mean, we're talking about like biometrics and everything uh, yes. just, <laughs> before an AI, which is a pretty good segue yeah. um, in, into that area. I mean, you could never keep up. There's, no, it gives me way anxiety. Too much. And then you could go really <laughs> deep into this direction, really deep into this other one. Mm -hmm. It's a, and I think that's where you have to go, what is it? What does happiness look like in the design for me, in design right. as a practice and a craft? Mm. What makes me happy and, and can keep me interested? And then do that. Right. And that, that's, like, that's equally true for practiced people in, in our industry, but more so even for people who are entering our industry and they say, oh, what should I do? Should I, should I become a researcher? Should I do this? And I'm like, go and try everything and see which one floats your boat the most mm. and then do that. And then if you don't want to do that, do something else. Right. Because I went through so many careers before I got here. Like, yes. <laughs> so many. Almost, uh, we could almost do a whole whole podcast just on like your, your work history, but it's uh. what we just fast forward to the, to the good stuff here. <laughs> um, we were chatting about AI just mm. then, and I believe this was a talk. I didn't get to see the talk, obviously, mm. but um, it was about trusting things that are invisible. Mm. We had a quick little chat before we started the podcast today about that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So with AI and machine learning and, and all of these capabilities uh, coming through to support people, I mm. guess, to to provide that's, services. That's the idea, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, I, look, I've been to a lot of talks and where you kind of get the Terminator slide um, and you know, I don't think that our future is Skynet becoming self-aware mm. and murdering us in our beds. I I really don't think that that's, that's our future of AI. Um, You've clearly already been compromised. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know I'm not one of them? Right. Very advanced version. <laughs> um, yeah. So what's really interesting is that you know, machine learning is great at recognizing patterns and sifting through data and finding patterns and, and themes and, and information and making decisions based on data much, much faster than, than a human could. Mm. And they're really, really good at that. They're terrible at doing things like recognizing faces. Right. So 
hard things for humans are easy for AI and machine learning. Easy things for human is hard for AI and machine learning. You remember the the you know recognizing African American faces as gorillas, right? It's, it's yeah. because it was not given the right data to learn. Mm. Um, to learn from. And so it was given biased data, therefore it comes back with biased results. Mm. We have to design trust into these systems that are making these invisible decisions for us so that we know that they are, we can trust that they're making the right decisions for us. Um, so how do we know that a self-driving car is going to do the right thing in an accident scenario? Yeah. We're just going to have to trust it. Um, how do we know that the system that is, uh, you know, selecting people or not selecting people for um, interview in an organisation? I mean, I'm talking about Amazon's sexist <laughs> AI right. yeah. that screened out women candidates. Right. How do we how do we know that if we put our trust into a system like that to make our work easier, so that we don't have to go through hundreds of thousands of uh, hundreds and hundreds of CVs, how can we trust that it is making the right decisions for us when we can't see how it's making those decisions? This And this is something that we're experimenting with at design at the moment. Um, how do we design trust into these systems? How do we design for trust? How do we design when people don't really understand how something's making a decision and still make them feel confident that it's doing the right thing? Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really interesting experimentation field for us at the minute. And who's responsible for those decisions? Well, <laughs> a machine will learn what you teach it with the data you give it. Right. So if it's like a bad dog, bad owner kind absolutely. of absolutely hundred. Oh, I could not think of a better scenario. In fact, can I steal that <laughs> and yours. use it? Yes. It's all yours. Thank you. Absolutely, it is. It's bad dog, bad owner. Mm. Well, garbage in, garbage out. Right. So if you feed a an intelligence biased data data that's incomplete, data that doesn't cover all aspects of, uh, of you know, humanity or, or anything like that, like mm. you will end up with a system that makes, um, you know, racist decisions, that makes sexist decisions, that just perpetuates human biases. And there's a, there's a real risk to, in this because a lot of the people who are responsible for this programming by legacy of the industry uh, come from, you know, you know, more privileged backgrounds are generally male. There's a, mm. a lot more men in the field than there are women. Even if you look at, um, you know, stats for computer science where we are seeing some more, some moves towards parity in the emerging fields such as AI, the number of women who are specialists or, or you know, AI programmers is, is much, much fewer than the rest of computer science. Yeah. So we see that sort of is perpetuating um, in these emerging fields. It's imprinting right into everything that's being created. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is for when they trained Alexa and Siri and, and all of those voice assistants. Mm who are often female They're voiced. They're all female. Yes, yeah. female Or at voiced. least when the original iteration. So there's a beautiful piece of research done where they were sexually inappropriate with Alexa and Siri and Cortana and, and all of those voice assistants to see what they would do. Right. And it was very interesting in some cases because somebody obviously sat down and thought about that. If somebody says something sexually inappropriate to this intelligence, how does it respond? And in some cases... Uh, the, we saw a lot of what we see with women, uh, de-escalation, like making a funny joke. Oh, no, really? I have yeah. no, I've not heard this. This is well, fascinating. This is probably because you've not tried to be sexually inappropriate with your voice assistants. <laughs> right. But it, it's a, a terrific piece of research. Some mm. of them, they just made a joke. Um, like to, laughed it off. Laughed it off. Oh, yeah, no. you were revolting to me. I'm just going to laugh it off. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I think Cortana mostly went, I'm sorry, I just don't understand what you're talking about. But the really, really 
terrible one was where it floated back. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like dudes thinks that that's what women like to do when, wow. you know, somebody's sexually inappropriate with them. Yeah, we just, we think that's hot and float back. Right. Um, so it's a fascinating piece of research. And if we don't have a diversity of, of thought, diversity of people from, you know, different ethnic backgrounds, different genders, you know, trans, what, all of that diversity, that fabulous diversity that it makes up humanity, if we don't include that in our technology and services and products and systems going forward, we're just going to get this homogenous thing that works for white dudes. Yeah. And that's, that's not a future that I'm excited about. So right. I'm very keen to ensure that we have this conversation and that we make strenuous efforts to mm. do the right thing by our you know dog AIs that we're teaching mm. and that we teach it well and it's yeah it's a very fascinating and tricky field and and very easy to get wrong and like the examples of of it going wrong are many right. <laughs> many and varied yeah it's fascinating one of the the reasons that we were connected was mm. thanks through um our mutual friend John also mm. because you are speaking at web directions shortly. Yep. Web Directions uh, de Design. Yep. Um, is that what you're talking about? You're going to be talking about future and, and tech and AI? I am. I'm talking, they entitled, uh, my talk is entitled um, Being Human in the Age of AI because I'm, right. I'm not a, like, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a machine learning expert or anything, but I am a fairly reasonably qualified individual in terms of people and technology. Hmm. And I've done a bit of an exploration of this space of like, you know, what, what do we mean when we're talking about AI? Because most of the time, we're actually talking about machine learning. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to give my talk now, but like, sure, yeah. AI doesn't. There is no generalist, generalized, general AI. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. We've got some pretty smart narrow AIs, but general AI is not. So, so not narrow a thing does yet. that mean like very specific? Can do a specific task, like smart for home you. sort of uh, thing. Yeah. And so a self-driving car is a narrow AI. It has one thing that it is good at, and that's what it does. Mm -hmm. Or you know, uh, when you get Watson to play chess or Go or or whatever, mm. you're giving it a narrow task to do. There's no reason why it shouldn't be able to beat us at chess. It should beat us at chess because they're really, really good at seeing patterns in data. Mm. They are always going to be better at that kind of thing. But when you need to take into context your environment, your experience, what you know about the world and use that to make decisions, that's where we get into the general AI, which is the more, you know, C-3PO type stuff. Right. That's not in existence in the world right now. Mm. How far do you think we're away from that sort of stuff? Or do you think it's a conglomerate of all those sorts of things? There's there's a whole lot of things that would have to be true and before that can happen, which right. is that we can, you know, that we can actually model human intelligence in silicon, which we can't right, right now. That intelligence would be able to learn and grow exponentially, which we don't know. Mm. There's so many things that that like we're just we're nowhere near there. Uh, I think what we will see is a whole lot of smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter uh, narrow AIs perhaps starting to join some of those together to mm. create something that's more of an approximation of a generalized AI. I just I I wouldn't even I wouldn't even want to speculate how far away yep. that is because they they're just things that I don't have specialist understanding of, but I know mm. that we can't model human intelligence in silicon yet at the same level as you know our cognitive functions work. Yeah, it's really it's it's a very interesting field. It's a great area. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so I, I will be talking about that, and um, m most of my talk is is really very much talking about some of those ethics and and biases and and looking at what can we do because I'd like to give people practical stuff in my talks. What can we actually do to ensure that our projects don't become those projects that I hold up as examples of the terrible? 
what questions do we need to ask to frame mm. the problem properly so that we design it the right way and design so that we can trust the invisible forces that are making the decisions? So I, I talk a little bit about that as well. I love um, the giving people practical things to do after a talk. So oh, you, don't, yeah. you don't watch 20 talks and think... Okay, well, that, that was, was a day off work. That was a whole day off work. <laughs> I know. I feel like if somebody walks out of the room and I haven't given them something that they can try and use on Monday, well, I didn't do a very good job. Right. So I'm hoping that that I achieve that uh, when I do this talk. I, in fact, I know I will because there's this really cool thing that I'm going to give everybody. <laughs> awesome. I hope, yeah, I hope everyone out there in the audience can um, can check that out. Mm. Speaking of giving people something practical mm. to do, how can people find out more about you after this podcast? Where where should you where should people go? Well, I have my very own website. Mm-hmm. My, look, I've been in the internet since the 1990s, <laughs> so you know, having my very own website. So yeah, I have I have my own website, katyaforbes.com, where you can see a lot of the talks that I've given, and there's there's many videos of of the the topics, especially the designer coaching uh, talk. I did that one in Interaction Latin America last year in Rio. Mm-hmm. Did a nice long 45 minute version of that. So that's one that you can go and find on that site. We can you can also find out a lot about what we're doing here on the uh, Design It Social channels. So we have Design It Global on Twitter, Design It on Twitter, Design It Global on Instagram, pretty prolific on LinkedIn as well. So that mm-hmm. talks about a lot of the projects that we're working on. And we've got our, we're allowed to do Instagram at a local level. So we've got our, <laughs> we've got our Design It AU. <laughs> nice. Very good. We'll, yep. I'll, um, we'll, we'll link all, to all that stuff as well. Oh, what, and what about IXDA? How do people get involved Oh, please get involved. Please get involved. So we are always, always, always looking for people who are passionate about the community. Now, our local local guy, Joe, you can contact him through the ixdasydney.org website. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think his email address, maybe I shouldn't give out his email. No, give out his email address. Yeah, joe at (laughs) (laughs) ixdasydney.org. I know, that was tricky, wasn't it? Could have guessed it, I think, yeah. (laughs) Sorry so about he, the spam joke. No, just kidding. He'll be all right. He'll be fine. So there's, but we also have a local group in Wollongong and a local group in Newcastle as well. Wollongong, and if you, cool. Yeah, yeah. Represent. That's if, awesome. Yeah. If you go to the ixda.org website, mm. you can look up your local group um, and see if you can find who the local leader is and get in touch with them. We are always excited to to have um, new people becoming involved in the community. We went from 30 in the basement of Atlassian to more than 2,000. I think, wow. and we're we're actually in like the nice room in Macquarie Bank now. <laughs> the nice room. There's there's a not there's nice a, room in Macquarie Bank. Not that I've been in. Actually, to be fair, all of Macquarie Bank is pretty nice. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. It's grown up. We're we're pretty grown up now. Big I'd kids. say in terms of um in terms of what we do. Uh, but yeah, the the local crew would would welcome anybody who wanted to attend an event, who wanted to volunteer at an event, who wanted to participate in the workshops. I think we've got Cornelius from Canada UX coming month or so to run a workshop for us. So Great. we're actually getting we're getting international talent to come and bring us things to learn from what's happening overseas, which is always valuable given we're so far away. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Um, there's about a million things we also could have covered yep. that I, um, I would have, I would, you know, I've got a whole list here of stuff. No, that... I haven't even got to talk about ice hockey yet. Ice hockey? Okay. We're talking about this <laughs> offline. You can find this episode and more at ausdesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram and SoundCloud at ausdesignradio. Thank you, Katya. Oh, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. 